Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. My name is Craig Thompson, and this is the open source field guide to help you understand everything you need to know about breaking into finance. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Paul Barnhurst, the FP&A guy. And Paul, I, I don't know how I got you to do this. It started with you know one of your PR people reaching out to me, and somehow I got you on my podcast. Uh, so thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I know. Happy to be on the podcast. I'm excited to get to chat with you today and you know chat with your audience. It should be a lot of fun. Terrific. And I guess maybe a great place to start is I think, you know, my audience is now kind of well-versed in kind of financial modeling. There are a lot of students who are interested in going into finance broadly, whether that's, you know, investment banking or finance at a company or an investing role. And let's just zoom way out. And could you just start with just kind of a quick primer on FP&A, what it stands for, and a little bit about what a day in the life looks like of an FP&A analyst? Yeah, of course. Be happy to do that. So, you know, FP&A, we'll start with just what the acronym is. It stands for Financial Planning and Analysis. And the way to think of it is, you know, you hear of uh, financial planners that help people plan their expenses for retirement, revenue, all those things for an individual. FP&A is much like that for a corporation, for a business. You're helping them build that budget, the forecast, uh, board decks, monthly reporting, analysis. And often people ask, well, what's the difference between FP&A and accountant? And the way I like to describe it is accountants are responsible for history, right? Making sure what happened is correct and that we can look at it and ensure that it's it's a good thing to use for analysis, right? You think of public stocks and analyzing them. You want to make sure that's right. FP&A is really all about how do you make sure you're doing a good job of spending the next dollar? Right? How do you best utilize that future capital you have to provide an adequate return? That's really what FP&A is all about. And so, yeah, so it's really a strategic role where you are working closely with, I guess this is in the CFO office, office mm-hmm. of the CFO. And I, I totally agree with that characterization. And really, for context, I know a lot of my banking friends who came up in banking who are working in FP&A. None mm-hmm. of them are working in the accounting side. Um, so this really <laughs> is a role that's focused on forward-looking projections, which means you have to really understand the business too. So maybe I, I know FP&A folks are spending a lot of time cross-functionally. Um, could you talk maybe a little bit about kind of what a day in the life looks like? Let's focus on budgeting season because that is, you know, the uh, you know prime time, crunch time for, for the FP&A function. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about what that process is and what it entails? Of course, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that. But I totally agree with you about it being strategic and a lot of people coming from banking. I'll add one thing and then I'll jump into that. You know, what we're seeing now is we're seeing a lot more CFOs come from FP&A. Um, I know a guy who runs the CFO council that said in the next couple of years, he expects the majority of CFOs to be coming from FP&A versus accounting and other places because of the strategic nature. And so when you get into budgeting season, the first thing is it's it's a pretty chaotic time. Anyone who's budgeted, you know, it's a, it's a grind. I see you smiling there so you can relate. But really what it's about is trying to put together what next year is going to look like. So really it starts before budget season. Starts with the company with the strategy. You got to have your, your strategy in place. What's your long range plan? Most companies do a three or five year. Okay, what's the number that they were thinking we'd have for this year? 
plus any prior forecast you've done. You take that, you look at the prior year, and you start that process to say, okay, in detail, what is 2024 going to look like? You know, by cost center, by month, revenue, headcount, all those different expenses. And you meet with the business, you meet with leadership, and there's many different ways you can do it. Sometimes it's top down where leadership says, look, hey, I don't, I don't care what you tell me. The number better be higher than $10 million for the year. And then you go work with the business and figure out how to get there. And other times they say, well, tell me what you can do. And you work with the business, you build it all bottoms up, you go to leadership. And then usually what happens is well, we want more. And then you go and you have that discussions of, okay, what would it take to get there? And really, one of the most important things when you're doing the budget is not to be right. Yes, you need to be directionally correct. If you're not even in the right you know, time zone, that's a problem. But you know, whether it's 1.2 million or 1.15 isn't so much what you're trying to accomplish, that level of accuracy, is that you're trying to plan and think through what needs to be done. How do we use these resources? What products and things should we be focusing on? And ideally, that all spills into operational planning. What you're seeing when I say strategic is FP&A is a lot more getting into operational metrics. You're even seeing places like I know one company where instead of being in the office of CFO, FP&A sits under the office of the CEO. And I've seen other places where you're starting to see FP&A kind of spill out into the business with the term XP&A is what they come sometimes call it, extended planning. It's becoming more and more important, and it should have always been there, to really make sure everything's aligned. It's not just the financial, but, okay, is that aligned with the operational? Are the quotas aligned with your targets? Are the uh, you know marketing dollars aligned with those targets? And really working to make sure you have a plan that you can report on, and not only report on, hey, we missed by this much, but really, why did you miss? And what can be done about it? So you really have to understand the drivers in the business to build a plan at the level that's needed for leadership and FP&A to hold people accountable. Because that's really the goal from a budget, right? If you're not holding people accountable, then why go through all the pain of building one? Yeah, yeah. So you're really the, you know, first, I guess, the eyes and ears of the CFO and the, and the C-suite because you are the effective translator of you know, fundamental things that are going on in the business, translating Mm -hmm. that into a forecast model, which obviously is important for planning. And, you know, here we sit in November, December, and we're trying to think about, you know, in this case, what what 2024 is going to look like and what we should plan for. But then relatedly, if you're consistently missing your forecast and you're missing your forecast in a correlated way, that should tell you as the FP&A professional that there's something you're missing and you're building your model incorrectly. Um, and so it's a little bit of a blind spot checker of like, hey, we are consistently coming up short in our cash flow forecast month over month. Is there some working capital component that we're modeling incorrectly? Correct. I still remember one time we had spent forever working on a business. The business wasn't very well understood. We brought in some new people and it took us six months to build the model to understand the business. I worked with a guy who had come from investment banking. He had stronger modeling skills. I worked on the data side. We got it all built. We thought we had a really good plan built and we get in and we came to find out we were off on certain months by quite a bit. And this was a business that had different mail drops. And we thought it was on a certain schedule, like four, four, five type of thing. And it turned out every program had different weeks they went. So some programs are four, one week, 
might've been three, five, and it was causing like $800,000 variances, sometimes like, you know, five, 10% on a business. And so we had to, you know, obviously fix that for the next year, but it took us a few months to realize, okay, the information we thought was wrong and all our schedules are slightly off. And some months it wasn't a big deal and other months it was a big deal. And it took us a while to figure out, okay, how did we screw this up? What's the driver we're missing from the business? So that's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah. And so now I, I, I think that's a great segue because I want to talk a little bit about if I'm, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young professional, maybe I'm in college, maybe I'm a couple years out of school, maybe I'm in business school and I want to break into a career in kind of FP&A. Um, maybe I want to be a CFO someday. Maybe I want to be kind of like head of FP&A at a larger organization. We talked about investment banking as one path. You talked about coming from the data side. It seems like there's a lot of business involvement too. Could you just talk a little bit about some common pathways you've seen of you know breaking yeah. into the space? Yeah, I would say there's probably four or five. Historically, the biggest has been accounting, right? Often controller just gets the assignment to build the budget. As it's become more strategic, you're seeing more and more paths to that FP&A role. So I'd say accounting is first. You're starting to see some come from data science as you see more machine learning being used, more AI to help supplement human judgment. Because if you have good historic data, generally AI will be more accurate than a person, machine learning to those algorithms. You know, if you don't have good data, all bets are off, but that's another story. So you're seeing some, you know, seeing more roles there. Investment banking is where they like to see because they know they're getting somebody with strong modeling skills coming in. And that's often something they're not, corporate finance is not good at teaching. That was definitely a weakness for me is nobody showed me how to build a model. It's just, I'm just guessing in the spreadsheet. And I mean, I think back to some of the first few models I built and I'm like, all right, this was just garbage. You know, you start <laughs> to learn and you start to learn some design principles and, and figure things out. So I think that's, that's a strong one. The other areas you're seeing, consulting is definitely one you see particularly you know, depending on the type of consulting, but you see some of that. And then I'd say, you know, last is you do occasionally see people that come from the MBA route, they get a finance role and then go into FP&A. That's actually the route I went is I did my MBA, did it in finance, joined the business as a finance analyst. It was called a finance role, but it was really a little bit of a business analyst. And about a year later, a opportunity to get promoted came up and I was doing a little bit of FP&A work in this role and it was an FP&A role. I'm like, oh, you're going to pay me more? Sign me up. I'll I'll join FP&A if I can get this promotion and been there ever since. So yeah. I wouldn't say it was ever a planned career like, oh, I'm going to go be an FP&A professional. Yeah. And so then besides uh, podcasting, what are some other exit opportunities that you might see, you know, an FP&A <laughs> professional pursue? No, I think there's a couple great ways. Like I just was talking to a guy the other day, someone who we're talking about bringing on my uh, podcast, one of the two I do, FPNA Today, and he was talking about how twice he's been tapped from FPNA to be chief of staff. Mm -hmm. Because, and I really like this description, there was a guy who came from FPNA's CFO, as he said, the only organization you have the CFO, FPNA, and the CEO that have a 360 view of the business. Those are the only three. If you think about it, right? CRO doesn't see everything, the product all those different people. So it's a natural to, that the, C, the CEO, if there's a really good relationship, will say, hey, this is great for chief of staff. I also see a lot of opportunities to go into business and do operational things as FP&A is becoming 
more and more operational in nature and more strategic. Historically, you didn't see it as much, but you're seeing it more. You know, obviously, the third role is to climb is to climb the ranks of FP&A, maybe become a CFO one day. So I think those are probably, you know, the most common kind of path you see is, all right, climbing the ranks just within finance to taking an operational role. And then I say a third one you're starting to see become more and more common, you know, as the gig economy continues to grow and the fractional work is what you call fractional CFO. I mean, I know you know about that, but I think that's definitely a route you see people in FP&A take where they're like, all right, I, I, I like doing this, but I'd like to do it with different companies and get a more broad experience and see them go that route. Yeah. Um, given how multifaceted the role of the FP&A professional is, what are the common either pitfalls or big boons to someone who's who's in that position like what are what are the things that kind of either you really need to have or kind of nice to haves that can help you kind of move into some of these other roles or grow within the role yeah so i think early on you got to be really comfortable working with data being able to clean data analyze data combine data together whether that's building a financial model or something you know something else I would say having a strong ability to work with data is critical, especially early on. As you start to scale, it becomes more and more important, I'd say two things. One, being a good business partner. You need to be able to work with the business and view them as a customer. As I had somebody say one time, and I really love this quote, is remember, your product is not the spreadsheet. Your product are the insights and the analysis that comes out of the the spreadsheet. And that's where it gets into the ability to communicate and be that business partner. And then, you know, last in addition to business partnering is really what I'll call data storytelling. Sometimes you hear the term storytelling and you you think of a bunch of kids around the teacher, you know, reading the book. And that's obviously not what we're talking about, but you need to be able to tell that story with data, with the visuals, with the narrative and help influence and guide the business. And for a lot of this data cleaning, data management, data analysis, I know Excel is the dominant tool in <laughs> the profession broadly, but it sounds like maybe in some of these organizations that have a lot more data, like maybe you know a consumer-facing business that has lots of point-of-sale data or Stripe data, are, are people using other tools like Python or kind of what are you seeing in terms of data analysis tools? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you see a few things. Obviously, you know, Excel's still dominant. I don't see that changing in the near future. You know, they have added Python to Excel I don't about a month ago. So I think you'll see more people learning it or at least learning how to get data into it using generative AI, chat GPT, and things like that. And so I think that's the number one tool. You know, next I would say are business intelligence tools. And, you know, dominant there is Power BI, but obviously Tableau, Clicker, or Click, Looker, Domo, MicroStrategy, I'm sure there's another dozen out there, right? Those commercial off-the-shelf BI tools. I think those are pretty common. You're seeing more and more in FP&A, if you look at job roles, asking for some, you know, BI experience. So I'd say that's probably the next big one. Then you're seeing some of your uh, cutting-edge newer companies, You'll see sometimes Python being asked for. 
not so much R. You might occasionally see that. I think that's pretty rare. Sometimes they want you to know some basic SQL. Smaller companies, that's a little more likely. I mean, and, and the other thing is strong modeling skills. And the, the level of modeling is very different if you're working for an American Express versus a startup, right? I've done corporate FP&A until I went out on my own. I never built a three, an integrated three-statement model for work. And I remember other people on LinkedIn saying, the most important thing you can learn for FP&A is how to build an integrated three-statement model. I don't know. I survived 12 years without one, you know, because he was supporting nothing but startups. And startups got to understand that cash flow. When you're dealing with you know, a company the size of American Express, you're not putting together a cash flow in the traditional sense. There's a lot of roll-up that happens. It's such a great point because... So much of the FP&A function is beholden to the goals and status of the organization. So mm -hmm. exactly to your point, if you're working at American Express or you're working at a large public company, so much of it is about, you know, the forecast matters, but, you know, maybe your supply chain is really what matters if you're a large global organization. Um, and that's where, you know, we can, we can have the conversation about all the FP&A software tools out there and, you know, the Anna plans of the world. <laughs> um, but that's very different, yeah, from a startup where if you are in an unprofitable business, you maybe care and you're a privately owned company like, and you're venture backed, the fully flowing three statement model doesn't matter nearly as much as what's my burn? What's my burn? What's my burn? <laughs> um, yep. How much time do I have left before I need to raise capital? And when I raise capital, am I building a model that tells the story I want to tell. And the story you want to tell venture investors is very different from the story you might tell public equity investors is very different from the story you might tell private equity investors. And that's, you know, that's my space is kind of private equity, private equity backed businesses. Yep. And there, yeah, you better know how to build a three statement financial model because that is, that is the thing um, that they really care about. Exactly. And so that's what I think a lot of people struggle with is not just that, but FP&A can be so different size of the company, but also between companies. I mean, I worked for a global company where I was writing the sales plans, like literally not just having the discussions and reviewing them, but I wrote a number of sales plans and got them signed off by, you know, legal and HR and very involved in operations. I can remember sitting one time with the head of sales and helping figure out some territory stuff. In other roles, you might never do that. And so that's what's exciting and unique about FP&A is each business treats it a little different and has different things that will fit in it. There's always the core. You're going to do the budget. You're going to do forecasting. You're going to do management reporting. You know, depending on whether you're a business unit or corporate, you're going to be involved in the board deck. And, you know, a few other things from that. You're going to do ad hoc analysis. But exactly what that means and what that looks like can be very different from company to company. And I think Sometimes that's frustrating for people, but it also provides a lot of opportunity and fun because it can vary a lot. Yeah, I think that's such a good example of how strategic this role really can be, where you are the knowledge center and the chief storyteller in a lot of ways for what's going on inside the company. And just that toolkit is so valuable in so many different facets of the business and business planning. And let's just take a step back a little bit, because I also want to talk about, you know, we've kind of spent a lot of time talking about budgeting and forecasting. Let's talk a little bit about financial modeling and why it really is 
the decision-making tool for companies and corporations? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the reason is there's probably two decision-making tools and I wouldn't recommend the one, which is often gut feel, right? We've all seen it. I, I just think this is a good idea. Have you seen the data? No, but my gut just tells me, and I trust my gut with a hundred million dollars. You sure, you know, that type of thing. Right. And so I think that's often, unfortunately, one of the common decision-making tools, but really I think one of the biggest we see that's backed by data is building that financial model because it allows us to put all those assumptions together and it allows us to look at the end of the day many different ways. Okay, discounted cash flow, net present value, right? There's a number of different ways we can model it and and say, this makes sense based on these assumptions. Then we can go a step further and say, okay, well, what about a couple different scenarios? What if there's a recession? What if there's a you know, conflict abroad? What do those look like? And then you can also run that sensitivity and, you know, Monte Carlo and simulations and start to get more and more comfortable to say, you know, I'm, I'm relatively comfortable. This will be positive somewhere in this range. And then you have to make that risk decision to say, okay, based on all this modeling, all we worked, we've done, are we sure this is the decision we want to make? I think at the end of the day, there's still a little bit, obviously some judgment. There's still a qualitative aspect to it. But the model really helps you quantify things and think through the strategy. What I loved is my finance professor, whenever we built a model, we had to write a paper. And the first thing he always required us to do was a five forces Porter analysis of the industry and the company before we did any financials. And he didn't so much care what our assumptions were, that it was more about could we support them? You know, he wasn't looking for a right answer. And that really helped me realize how much of a financial model is about those assumptions and understanding the business versus just getting to a number that's going to be wrong no matter what it is. Yeah. And this reminds me of, I think, a couple of experiences I've had building like the true V1 of a forecast model for a business that previously was on the gut feel approach. And <laughs> I will say like the gut feel in a lot of cases can be can be powerful and can be mm -hmm. directionally accurate. Um, but my experience building V1 and sort of like talking to folks who are saying like, hey, like the gut feel has been working okay. Like, do I need this? And I think my experience in those kind of transformational times for these companies has really been first, that V1 of the model is not about accuracy. It's about showing the areas of blind spots where the gut feel approach was happening. And a lot of that I've seen has really come in and kind of like ability to collect on contracts um, from customers. So basically like managing your receivables has been one big impact I've seen. And then also really digging into the unit economics for companies mm -hmm. that have multiple businesses or multiple products where... The aggregate view shows profitability, but if you look a level deeper, it turns out maybe one of those businesses is actually literally unprofitable or, yep. you know, is, you know, has a cash conversion cycle that's just, you know, it's crazy. Like they're, they're like cash flow negative on, you know, a particular product sale, like five months after they recognize the revenue. Um, and it's also been really helpful, I think, for people for demystifying what are true leading and lagging indicators. 
because that's a really powerful tool in planning. If you're trying to figure out what your cash needs are for the upcoming year, maybe you want to do some, you know, some small acquisitions, you want to do some hiring and you want to figure that out. If you identify leading indicators in your business that are predictive of what cash is going to be in six months, that is a tremendously powerful planning tool because now all of a sudden, you know, your assumptions and kind of your guesses matter for months seven through 12 and beyond, but you have concrete things that are going on today that can make the next six months a lot more predictable. Yeah. I love what you said there. There's quite a bit, but I like the point you made one where, you know, gut fill is often directionally correct. It will get you close and you, you, you can run a decent business on that. But once you really dig in, you do that V1, you get those insights and start to realize, oh, I was off here. And had I been monitoring this over the last three years, I could have made another half million dollars or whatever the number is, right? And you start seeing all these little things that add up to being material that you didn't know about until you really pull back the covers and start to dig in. And I think, you know, obviously modeling can really help you do that. So I I think you make a great, great point there. I want to talk a little bit about the future of FP&A and financial modeling. AI, LLMs are obviously buzzy topics right now. (laughs) Um, I've heard people who have said, you know, the the future of humans in FP&A, you know, those days are numbered. And I've heard people say, we are so far away from that. And the people who've been predicting the the demise of Excel plus a person who knows how to use it um, has seemed to endure several decades of, <laughs> of doubt in this area. So I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on where you think we stand there. Yeah. So, I mean, first, I'm not one of those that say, hey, our jobs are all going to go away. You know, I have, a, I have two fun questions I ask in the podcast I do, Financial Modelers Corner. And these are you know, guys such as like world champion of modeling. Another guy built his first model in 1978 using a mainframe. So these are people with, you know, lots of years of experience and it gets some fascinating uh, answers. But two questions we ask them is one, you know, will Excel ever die? Right. Kind of that question everybody has. We've heard Excel killer for what, 20 years now? And mm-hmm. Excel is pretty much as big as ever. And you know, what's interesting is the vast majority say no. Second question we I've been asking recently is, you know, will AI ever build the model? Most of them say yes, but I think what they, they caution is, okay, yes, it can build the technical model, but you still got to validate the assumptions. You still have to do work. And so I think no matter how you know far we come with AI, I still think there's going to, there's obviously going to be a role for human judgment and the strategy. Will it start to do more and more technical things? Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing it. If anyone's used code interpreter and had it, you know, put together analysis for you, it can do a good job or write a formula or, you know, for coders, write their code. So it's definitely going to reduce tasks. It's going to help improve quality of a data. And I think we'll get to the point where it can build the basic model, but it's not going to take or take everybody's job. Jobs are going to change. Just like a lot of people thought the internet would take our jobs. No, it just changed our jobs. And I think that's mostly what we'll see. Sure. Will some roles go away? May some companies be able to reduce a few headcount? Probably. But I think this idea of it's doomsday and we're all going to be sitting home with a universal basic income and 
robots are our overlord. You know, that that's far from the truth, in my opinion. I I love this topic because I remember being, you know, first year analysts in investment banking. I'm learning all this stuff in a trial by fire. I'm often making mistakes. I'm learning a lot, you know, and I got a lot better. But, you know, when you're new at this, like, there's reasons why they have like six layers of people that check all your stuff. And <laughs> I just remember thinking at some point, like, man, I feel like I'm like, like running ahead of this tsunami of AI. And like, it feels like a computer could do this job with fewer errors than I could. And over time, I think I've become more of an AI bear, even in light of kind of the LLM revolution that we've seen recently. And a couple thoughts on this. The two things that I think that, you know, in this current AI revolution, large language models, you know, ChatGPT, all of those, there are two things that it's bad at. And I think one, I think the engineering will overcome. The other, I'm not so sure, which is first, they're still really bad at math. Um, mm -hmm. And, and yep. that feels like a... That feels like an engineering challenge that I don't, you know, understand at a very deep level, but it feels like something they, they can fix. Like to the extent that large language models are kind of like a calculator for language and for writing in the way that traditional calculators have been used for, you know, numerical stuff. Like I believe that eventually, you know, ChatGPT will get better at that or, you know, or whatever the, the AI is that focuses on that. Um, mm -hmm. The bigger issue to me is the inability of large language models to explain themselves and explain what they've built. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've been having this whole conversation about strategic finance and FP&A, and so much of it is not the model. It's the explanation of, if I change this, what happens to this? And understanding that if you change one input in one cell of a model, that qualitatively, that might mean other changes need to happen too. And that gets into scenario analysis building. And if this modeling was done in an interface that people could credibly believe the math was 100% accurate and made it easy for the human evaluators to understand exactly how the model operates, then we start talking about, you know, more of an AI revolution in financial modeling. But even if chat GPT, you know, GPT-5 spits out a perfect Excel model, and then you say, what about this? Or I want to change something. First off, you probably needed to understand in your head how you wanted the model to be built to correctly describe for the large language model like what type of model it should generate for you. And then second, understanding and really being the owner of an Excel model that you didn't build is, I think it's functionally impossible. Like, you know, there, there are people who have years of finance experience who take over some model that somebody else built. And even if it is like a perfectly done, perfectly formatted, well-commented model, it takes like two days <laughs> to like understand 90% of these. Um, so I'm I'm curious what you think of that. I, I I definitely feel like I'm I'm the AI bear in the room here. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think you bring up some valid points for sure. I mean we've all been there where you inherit somebody else's model and half the time you say screw it I'm starting over. This thing's a mess. I'll never understand it. But I think if you know if the tools which I think will be trained 
to use certain standards. You start to see being built, particularly with things like dynamic arrays where, okay, now I got one formula that's going all the way across the model. I think that auditing becomes much easier. Now, so I, I do think we can get to the point where it'll be easier to understand the models if they're built by AI. But as far as that judgment and you know the human element of it, I still think that's that part that we're going to have to do. Even if they build a model, we're going to, you know, it's going to need to be very clear what all the assumptions are. And you're going to go through review those and play with those. And you may still have to build out, you know, part of the scenario. So I, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think we'll get to the point where it's, hey, press a button and turn it over to the, the company, mm -hmm. right? I, if we get there, then maybe we will be sitting home on a universal basic income. But <laughs> I, I don't see that happening. I don't know if I ever see that happening, but definitely not in the short term. But I do think we'll get the point where a lot of the model can be built for us. And I think it will more be, there'll be some kind of standard that they'll, they'll build to depending on what you need. And people will get comfortable understanding that and it'll give them a head start. But yes, there still is going to be review. I think there's still a fair amount of work. So I'm more, uh, you know, bullish on it, but I, I definitely think you make a lot of good points and I think there are things we'll have to, you know, figure out as we go through this revolution. But I don't think, you know, it's it's tomorrow or next week or by the end of the year or anything like that. I think this is a longer journey than a lot of people think. We're moving fast, but there's a lot of things that have to be figured out before, not just finance, but true mass adoption in general of language learning models. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, I guess it sounds like you know, and I, I am, like we said, I'm more bearish on, on this than you are, but even in a world where a lot of this stuff is happening in an automated way, understanding financial modeling does not become less important. Perhaps being the like person in Excel building formulas um, might get devalued a little bit, but there is always going to be a market for understanding fundamentally how these things work and how they get built because there is sort of always a reviewer and a decision maker at the end of the day. Exactly. I mean, that isn't going, going away. I don't see AI being the one that we say, Hey, just make the decisions and run my business. Right. We still have to do that part. And that requires a deep understanding. It may not require the understanding of, Hey, how some ifs work and how do I nest that with an X lookup and all those type of things. So it's a different, different type of deep understanding, but really, Okay, how do I understand the business, the economics, the financial statements? How do I make sure this all hangs together and can validate the assumptions and that I'm comfortable that this model makes sense and I can use it to make it a, a decision that has, you know, big impl implications? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and that's, I think, I will say when I think about areas where AI can add a lot of value in the financial modeling work stream in the nearer term. I think the two things I think about are one, you know, kind of like a Grammarly for a financial model, like something that can look through and be like, hey, you know, we trained our data on all of these other, you know, company models. And you have this assumption that for this industry seems off. Like you just kind of made a guess about, you know, receivable days or something like that. And they might be able to like, hey, this would be in the 95th percentile of companies like yours. Um, and then you could say, well, we're a 95th percentile company and that's fine. Or you might be like, oh, like, let me ratchet it down. And then model auditing. Like, I, I just think like, 
people who write these things are not perfect and there end up being errors <laughs> in strange places. And I often see like, I mean, there, I, I feel like there are often little errors in a lot of places. Like I, I, I definitely felt for the poor Goldman analyst who during the Twitter, you know, takeover battle, like Elon was trying to get like Goldman's like valuation um, committee model to be public. And I, I felt terribly for that poor Goldman analyst who was about to be put on blast when there was some error in the, you know, cell like AC 7,400 of the 15th tab um, that ended up having a 5% impact on EBITDA. Um, but it's also like when you're refreshing models over time, I feel like that's where I see errors. And I, so I, I see room for some sort of um, more automated checker that might not catch everything, but might kind of help catch things too. Yeah, and I, and you know we we have some auditing tools and they've got better, but I agree with you. Language learning would help, not just assumptions, but other things. Like I've seen one that will recommend they look at the formulas, and if you're using VLOOKUP, it may say, "Hey, index match or X lookup may make more sense here because mm -hmm. there's lower risk. Here's some of the concerns, and it's more of a warning, right?" And so I think there's a lot of different things, even from all the way down to formula to assumptions, like you mentioned, the 95 percent. So I definitely find them. For sure, I think in in the near term we'll see more and more help with that. I think we'll see some of that with Copilot coming for, you know, Microsoft to be able to analyze and be like, all right, here's 27 things you should go look at in your model, yeah, and here's yep. the reasons we have concern. Yep. Yeah. Well, any anyway, I'll, I will be very curious to yeah see see how this all this all plays out. It's definitely a fascinating time. Um. Moving past the technology, just kind of future of the FP&A professional generally, are you seeing any trends in terms of um, changes in how FP&A professionals are being employed or used or the type of tasks they're being asked to work on? Maybe the data component is part of this, but curious if, the, if that yeah, is the main Yeah, so I thing think or... we're seeing a couple things within finance in general and also, you know, FP&A specifically. One, being viewed more strategic, as we talked about, you know, being asked to understand more operational I heard someone say one time, if you want to know if a, a CFO is a modern CFO, look at if he owns data or not. And I thought that was really interesting. So you're seeing, you know, more and more push to understand data, both operational and financial. You're seeing uh, more and more need to be, to do scenario analysis, right? COVID changed everything and it hasn't slowed down since then. All we got to look is that conflicts abroad, energy crisis, inflation. And there's so much uncertainty being able to model scenarios. So I think people are realizing more and more the value of FP&A. I'd say that's one of the biggest things that's changing is it's gone from a back office function to, hey, that's just funny math you do and just leave me alone. I don't want to deal with you to in companies that are forward thinking, hey, FP&A is a good strategic partner. You know you're doing a good, Jeff, good job of FP&A and you're at a company that values it. When the general manager is saying, hey, I want you in the room when I make decisions. That's when you know you're working in a strategic FP&A role. Last question, I guess, before we go. If any listeners out there are interested in learning more about the space, are there any resources that you'd recommend people, people check out or look at? Yeah, so I'll start with a couple of the podcasts I have. I mean, if you want to learn about FP&A specifically, I have a podcast called FP&A Today. You know, it's one of the top podcasts out there in FP&A. We do weekly episodes. And then I have a second one specifically about financial modeling called Financial Modeler's Corner. 
you know, we've had a lot of great guests on from a guy who was a two-time world champion in Excel modeling. Which is a real thing. I I, yes. I, <laughs> I haven't followed live, but I'm, I've been, you know, aware of it for a few years. It's such a funny thing that exists, but it does. Uh, it does. I, I competed recently. It was, uh, I got annihilated, but it was a good learning <laughs> experience. Let's just say. What, what is the they, competition they, like? So there's two different types. So I'll, I'll go real quick here. There's called the Financial Modeling World Cup which that one you just do on your own. You submit the questions. They're a finance based. They go from kind of easy to hard. You got an hour or you know two hours or whatever. And there's usually three or four different cases. Something as simple as, okay, figure out what the depreciation would be or calculate the present value on something. And then it's getting more and more complex. Okay. Now every month's change and you're optimizing and they're trying to have to build a pretty complex financial model. So that's one. The uh, World Cup Championship is based on what I'll call the Excel esports side. They're actually doing it in Vegas. I will be there interviewing the, the champions. Never <laughs> thought I'd say that. But anyway, so the case I did, these examples are more like, say, somebody puts a, a picture out there and it's a soccer field. And so it was like a foos table in the example I had. And it was, okay, if the ball goes six up and three to the right, who ha- who's going to get that ball. And so each you know, person had a certain range they could work within. And so that's like level one, or even before that, it might be, okay, how many people are in the stadium? Okay. What's the total value based on these ticket prices? Then it's okay. What if it does this? And then it's like, okay, how many would it take to score from there? And so there are op- a lot of optimization where you're having to think real quick and try to come up with a formula that will work in a very short time to answer. And it gets, it goes from easy to very hard. There's usually five or six levels on these questions. Then they're usually designed in some kind of way that there's a field or an image because it's shown on ESPN, right? They got to make it visually appealing, but also challenging. And so it was really interesting. Like they're logging all my keystrokes and yeah, yeah. I, it was just a disaster. Is is, every, is it like a, like a bullpen and everybody's like sitting in a room together or what's, what no, is No, this the, was all, it was all remote was when all I remote. did the okay. one I did. Yeah. But I do know the world championships will actually be held in uh, Vegas's HyperX eSports arena. Mm-hmm. So everybody will be there. Yeah. But yeah, it was all done virtual. I had announcers. They were announcing, there were four of us, I think, that yep. did it. And if you, mine's out there online. If you watch it, you'll basically see me in fourth for, I don't know, 28 of the 30 <laughs> minutes. I think I got up to second really quick because I answered a bonus question. Yeah. It was all downhill after that. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> so. um, well, I, I definitely, now I'm curious now. I'm probably going to check that out. Um, yeah, but- there's a YouTube channel, Financial Modeling World Cup and... So Amazing. come join me in Vegas if you're interested. Yeah. I, got a, I got a discount for it. So, <laughs> Well, Paul, thank you so much for, for joining. Really interesting conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Craig. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, good luck continuing to grow your podcast. I think you're great. You're doing that breaking into finance. People need that. Thank you. Thank you. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.